every Lord's Day that passes with you, church, uh, I just treasure it more and more. I love being here with you every week to worship God together and to be in his word together, and I hope that you feel the same way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your word. How kind you are that you didn't just leave us here without a paddle to just try to figure out what to do in this life on our own. You've left us your very word, how kind you are. And we ask that as it's read and preached today, that you would help us to give you our undivided attention. There's much distraction in this world, much distraction in our lives, trials, our own sin, just having stayed up too late last night, whatever the case is, Lord, we pray that you would overcome those challenges and help us to listen to you closely. All for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to start with a poll, a survey. Okay? So you're going to hear two statements. And if either or both of these statements apply to you, just raise your hand. It's not a trick question, so don't, don't worry about that. And here they are. Here's your first question. If you at any Christian church you've ever been to, have ever felt excluded or unloved, raise your hand. Okay, you can lower your hands. Second question, if you think that Christians feeling excluded or unloved in a church is a serious matter, raise your hand. Okay, we're off to a good start. If you raise your hand the first time, we, we sympathize with with you. This kind of thing happens really far too often in churches in America, and we say America in particular because if you look around, we're, we're, we have a quite a diversity of where we're from, and I've heard from brothers and sisters here that where they're from, whether it's the Philippines or Mexico or Cuba, the church isn't like that there. In their experience, community in church just comes naturally, where you feel welcomed and loved and I think part of that is because just the culture itself, even outside of the church, is already like that. They already have this sense of community and love for each other, even outside of the church. And so when they come to America, where Americans are really not like that, I can count in less than two hands how many of my neighbors in my neighborhood I know to my shame. But when they come to a church in America that looks like America, they experienced a culture shock when they went to church for the first time in the U.S. One brother shared with me recently that even in our church, even as recent as a couple of years ago, week after week of his attending here, not one person greeted him. Now, he's a brother with Reformed Baptist convictions, and it was, it was probably those convictions that aligned with ours that God used to keep him here in spite of that. But this brother did struggle with this question. Do I even belong here? Lord, is this where I'm supposed to be? It was confusing to him how, how he and his family could be so unnoticed and so uncared for by an assembly of God's people whose stated purpose is to know Jesus and make him known. Who come here together to worship God week after week. How can he and his family go unnoticed and uncared for? You can tell that that was the reason that prompted this sermon. It grieved me, grieved my soul 
to hear that. And it prompted the desire to preach on the subject of partiality. Partiality? Isn't this really more about hospitality? Well, certainly hospitality is part of it. But the reason why we're zeroing in on the sin of partiality this morning is that it has been the pastor's observation that there is inconsistency when it comes to the people's experience here at First Baptist Church of the Lakes. There's inconsistency. There are some people who feel like we're the friendliest church that they've ever seen. And there are others who feel like we're cold and distant. Just check Yelp or Google. And it has been my observation as well that, that the people who get the most attention are, if we're just being honest, middle-class, English-speaking families with young children. Those people will come to the lakes, generally speaking, and they'll feel welcomed. They'll feel loved. And in contrast, if someone walks in here alone, looking grungy, looking depressed, looking different from the average family in our church, he just usually doesn't get much attention here. He doesn't get sat next to at luncheons. He doesn't get invited to D-group. Another observation I've made is that when some people ask for help moving or with meals, they get a quick overabundance of volunteers. We've got to turn people away. But when others ask, it's a struggle to get help. So these have been simply my observation and my interpretation of the events. If you can prove me wrong, I wouldn't mind being wrong. I'd praise God if I'm wrong. But if what I see is right then I agree with all of you who raised your hand that second time that we do have a serious matter in our church that we need to attend to. Why? Listen to this. Because partiality is one of the least godly traits that a person could have. Partiality is one of the least godly traits that a person could have. Partiality is contrary to the will of God and it's contrary to the character of God, and it is a front to what God has done for you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The bad news is that in James's time, that was already a problem. The good news is that because it was a problem back then, we now have this subject explicitly addressed for us in the Word of God. And the Word of God, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, will teach us, will reprove us, will correct us, and will train us in righteousness. By God's help, we will be less like the culture around us and will be more like Jesus Christ. So as we go through this passage, we're going to see, number one, the hypocrisy of partiality. Number two, the foolishness of partiality. And number three, the sinfulness of partiality. So let's look at these one at a time, starting with number one, the hypocrisy of of partiality. This is going to be verses 1 through 6a, the hypocrisy of partiality. And we're going to spend a good chunk of the sermon here, probably half. So James here has, has just made the argument that Christians should not simply be hearers of the word, but they should be doers also. He's just said in, in chapter 1, verse 27, notice James 1, 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
You've probably heard the statement and liked it before that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But really, just as many statements are, that's really a, a false dichotomy. A religion is simply a particular system of faith and worship, which Christianity is. It's actually the only true religion. It is a religion, and it's the only true religion. And James says that pure and undefiled religion is being a doer of the word. And he picks taking care of widows and orphans for some reason to stand in place of something. And I think it's, it's because it's something that's not very appealing for people. You don't go into the limelight for taking care of widows and orphans. It's difficult work. But true religion is doing things like that. Pure and undefiled religion is keeping yourself unstained from the world. In other words, being holy instead of being worldly. And of course, that transitions very nicely into our passage. Because committing the sin of impartiality in a church, especially, is being a hearer of the word, but not a doer of it. Being a hearer, but not a doer. Partiality is is also the result of being stained by the world. Like I said, we are like that in American churches because America is like that, right? We import the culture into our church, sadly. Partiality does not come from Christ our Lord. Partiality comes from the devil. And that is why, that's why James starts our passage in verse 1 by saying this. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So first, let's be comforted by this phrase, my brothers. Because hearing what we've heard so far, that partiality is hypocritical and it's inconsistent with Christianity, that might make someone scared, fearful, that he isn't a true Christian. But the reality is, that even true brothers and sisters in Christ can struggle with this sin. What sets you apart from an unbeliever is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with this sin that you're struggling with? We're called to, Colossians 3, 5 tells us, put to death what is earthly in us. Put it to death. So my brothers and sisters, number one, I'm sorry, verse one, show no partiality. Show no partiality. We've been using this word a lot without actually defining it. So let's, let's define it here. Partiality is essentially treating people either better or worse based on external qualities. It's treating people either better or worse based on external qualities. Ethnicity is an example of this. In Romans 2.11, Romans 2.11 we see that God is going to judge people by their works, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And the reason that's given there is this. God shows no partiality. So ethnicity is an example. Social status is another example. Social status. In Ephesians 6, Paul says that God is going to bless his people for doing good, whether they are bondservant or whether they're free. And he tells masters to treat their servants well because God is master over both masters and bondservants. And Ephesians 6, 9, there is no 
partiality with him. God is not partial. So we have ethnicity, social status is another example. Physical appearance is another example. Even though the word partiality is not used in 1 Samuel 16, 7, 1 Samuel 16, 7, in that verse, God says to the prophet Samuel about David's older brother, because Samuel's trying to find who the next king is, and Samuel identifies the tall and handsome one. That's got to be the king. So God says to Samuel about David's older brother, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel was partial to David's older brother because he was tall, dark, and handsome. Just like Israel liked King Saul because he was tall, dark, and handsome. But God was not partial to either of them. Consider, just think, which first-time visitor do you think would be more likely to be greeted by more people at our church? The unbeliever wearing a suit and tie or the believer with tattoos and piercings? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So that's essentially what partiality is. It is preferring people over others for reasons like ethnicity, social status, and physical appearance. And surely it could be applied to other qualities like ability, personality, fertility, age, language, political affiliation, physical health, occupation, education, marital status, etc., if you mistreat anyone based on things like those, it's partiality. It's partiality. And God, through James, tells us in verse 1, notice, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's the Jesus whom we follow. That's the Jesus whom we worship. And James says, don't believe in him and show partiality. Don't do that. Don't believe in Jesus and show partiality. And what seems to be implied in that statement is, that doesn't make any sense. That's illogical. That's hypocritical. How could you believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and show partiality? We'll expand on that more in a little while. But James gives us another example of this, starting in verses 2 through 4. Look at verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? One of my favorite commentators, Matthew Henry, uh, he thinks that this, well, he thought he thought that this wasn't talking about a religious service, 
but rather more like a, a meeting where people were making judgments together, something like a, like a courtroom kind of setting. But the word that's translated assembly there in verse 2 is the word that is most often just transliterated synagogue. Synagogue. And, and that was uh, the gathering of especially Jews for worship. And they started calling the places that they used to synagogue, they used to call those synagogues. It's kind of like how we use the word church today. I prefer not to. I try not to use the word church for this building because I just want to strengthen my conviction that First Baptist is not 9125 Spring Mountain, but the church meets here. But they kind of use the same way, word the same way that we do now. We're going to synagogue at the synagogue, all right? Thayer's Greek lexicon says that Jewish Christians kept using the word synagogue to talk about their Christian worship assemblies. That makes sense. The first Christians were Jewish, and so they were just continuing to synagogue together in the synagogues. And a similar word is used also in Hebrews 10.25 when it says to not neglect meeting together. Don't neglect episynagoge, the assembling of the saints. So uh, with all due respect to Matthew Henry, we're just going to assume today at least that James is talking about when Christians get together for church. That's the context of what we're talking about. But certainly the principle applies in, in all situations, not just the worship service. But there's something that's ex especially heinous about this kind of thing happening when we gather together for church. It's one thing to sin in, in this way at the grocery store. It's another way to sin this way in our worship service together. So imagine a church service where verse 2 says, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. As you probably rightly understand, gold rings, fine clothing, that's speaking about wealth. It's speaking about prestige. Maybe for us it's pulling up in a nice car and having a nice suit. Nothing wrong with that. But then another man comes in, a poor man in shabby clothes, verse 2 says. Verse 3 continues to paint the picture of paying attention to the rich man and offering him a good place to sit, a great place to sit. The Cambridge Bible notes this. In practice, the seats most coveted among the Jews were those near the end of the synagogue which looked towards Jerusalem and that which stood the ark that contained the scroll, a sacred roll of the law. We do not know whether the first meeting places of the Christian society followed the same arrangements or whether then, as at a later period, the table of the Lord took the place which had been occupied by the ark and led them to covet the places that were near it and therefore well-placed for seeing and hearing the officiating elder. So all of that really just to say that it seems that among the Jews, there were more coveted seats in the synagogue. Since we're Baptists, it's the back row, right? We love the back row as Baptists. But those are the favored seats. And if that happened again with the Jews, it wouldn't have been unlikely for Jewish Christians to import that into their church culture as well. Verse 3 continues to have us imagine telling the poor man, go stand over there. Or you know what? You can sit down on my feet if you want, after giving the rich man the seat of honor. And verse 4 concludes that if you do that, look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
So here we see one of the reasons why partiality is so bad. It's making distinctions among ourselves. Now, what this is not talking about is just making observations about differences between people. And the reason that we know that are several examples. In 1 Timothy, Paul gives instructions to the rich. And he doesn't say, stop being rich. No, he tells them not to be haughty, don't trust in your riches, and be generous with what you have. So there's still a distinction, even in the church, of rich Christians and poor Christians in the Bible. Elsewhere, Jews and Gentiles continue to be uh, distinguished. Ephesians is all about that. Us, you, us, you. So there's still a distinction of ethnicity as well. Um, Where else? Uh, Husbands and wives are still also, even though there's supposedly no male or female, husband and wife are given different responsibilities in a marriage. Okay? So distinctions themselves are not the issue. It's not about distinguishing. The issue is separation. It's the kind of distinction that separates Christians. Rich Christians sit over there. Poor Christians stand. And while we may not do it with malice, we see this kind of thing at our luncheons. There are exceptions, of course. But in any given luncheon, I could point to you where the old people sit, where the young people sit, where my Filipinos sit, and where the Spanish speakers sit. I could also point out to you people who are sitting by themselves. What in the kingdom of Christ is that about? He has reconciled us together by his blood, and we would make distinctions? We would make separations? A Christ-like luncheon would be one where nobody is sitting by themselves, where a young person is learning from an older person, where a non-Spanish speaker is doing his best to communicate with a Spanish speaker because they are one in Christ. If you give the rich man a better seat, have you not made distinctions among yourselves, verse 4, and become judges with evil thoughts? We have an idea of what judges with evil thoughts is like. We know what corrupt judges are like. Corrupt judges make judgments not based on facts, certainly not based on the law, but on partiality, on favoritism. We know that, that celebrities get sentences that inner city people couldn't even dream of. When we make distinctions among ourselves, we're being, we're being like that. We're being like corrupt judges. Our God and Savior and judge is not like that. He is not like that. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Now this is not to say that God has only chosen the poor, my beloved brothers, but he has chosen many poor people to glorify him, and he did that for a very particular purpose. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 says this, For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world 
to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If God were a partial God, he would have looked like the Babylonians during Israel's exile. He would have gone to the world and just picked out the young people with gifts. He would have picked the best of the best to bring back to Babylonia. His people would be made up of the wisest, the most powerful, the richest. But God is not a respecter of persons. He is not partial. There is no partiality with him. He chooses rich and poor. And part of his choosing the poor, the uneducated, and the powerless is that it humbles the rich, the wise, and the powerful. Those Christians who are rich and powerful and wise can't ever say that God chose them because they had any value in themselves. Because God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith, no one can boast. No one can boast. So no matter what your background is, friends, if you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation and you're therefore one of God's people, you are rich. You are rich in faith. You are heirs of God's very kingdom. You possess treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy. If you love him, his kingdom is promised to you. And again, that's true for you regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your career path, regardless of your ability or your wisdom or beauty. And not just that, I'm about to hurt your feelings, you used to be disgusting. You used to be disgusting. You were of the devil. You were a slave to sin with no ability to serve God and not even any inkling of a desire to do so. You were ugly. I was uglier. And yet God chose you for salvation. He chose you for his kingdom. But you, verse 6, have dishonored the poor man? That doesn't make any sense. Do you see how hypocritical it is for you to show partiality when God did not show partiality against you? Partiality is hypocritical. It is one of the most inconsistent qualities of being a Christian, and therefore, we need to take it seriously. We need to identify it in each of our hearts and our minds and our actions, and we need to put it to death. And all of God's people said, Amen. We need to put it to death. Because if we don't, it dishonors the very God who reached out to us while we were still ungodly. It dishonors the Savior who died for us while we were yet sinners. And it stains the name of Christ that we bear. So we've seen the hypocrisy of partiality. Hypocrisy of partiality. Let's look next much more quickly at number two. The foolishness of partiality. The foolishness of partiality. The second part of verse six, notice. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? and the ones who drag you into court? This is probably, and hopefully, not talking about rich believers, but, but rather the unbelieving rich in their world. 
To oppress means in this context to exercise harsh control over somebody else or to use one's power against another. And we don't know exactly what the rich were doing to the Christians at that time, but isn't it just a general principle that can be observed? That historically, haven't those who are rich unbelievers been the ones with the most power? And does not power corrupt? Isn't it far more common for people to, to misuse their power and step on the little guy than it is for them to use their power for good? It was the rich who were oppressing the church, which was largely made up of poor people. Why? Because society was largely made up of poor people. The rich were known for being oppressive, the unbelieving rich, that is. Why on earth would Christians want to show favoritism to them? It just adds another layer of foolishness to James's point. Furthermore, aren't the rich ones aren't the rich the ones who are dragging you into court? James James asks. Aren't aren't the unbelieving rich like notoriously litigious? In other words, they want to sue you? How many poor people have you met that said, "I'll see you in court?" That's a rich person's line. An unbelieving rich person. So not only were the rich lording their wealth and power over the poor, but they would also sue the poor. Why would you be showing them favoritism when they're doing harm to you and your fellow Christians? That doesn't make any sense. More important than that, the rich were the ones who were prone to blaspheme the name of Christ. Verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now again, we don't want to be impartial against the rich either, right? We can fall off on that ditch as well. Not all rich people have rejected Christ. And really, in the grand scheme of the whole world, everyone in here is rich, okay? Many rich people have followed Jesus Christ. But many also rejected Christ. Unless God intervened in a rich person's life, it seems like they were especially prone to reject him. At least Jesus speaks that way. When Jesus says in Matthew 19, 24, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now again, some people, some rich people did turn to Christ. Why? Because all things are possible with God. But it was definitely in spite of their riches, not because of them. No, many rich people are harder to share the gospel with. That's been church planters' testimonies. When they go to a rich part of town, it's hard to plant a church in a rich part of town for some reason. Why? I'm guessing it's because rich people don't feel like they have any needs. They won't hear your gospel because they don't have any needs. Many rich people blaspheme the name of Christ, the honorable name by which we have been called. And we prefer rich people? That doesn't make any sense, James says. I agree with James. It's foolishness. Let's expand this principle further. Who are you more inclined to align with? An unbelieving person of your political party or a believer on the other side of the aisle? A brother or sister in Christ who has a different skin color than you 
or a child of Satan who's closer to you in melanin. A cheesy old guy who wears his socks too high with his New Balance sneakers but can tell you about Jesus or someone who's cooler and closer to your age but would lead you straight to hell. It is foolishness to favor people who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called and who would likely oppress you if you cross them. If you're... If your strangers, hear this, if you're strangers to most of the people in your church family, but your best friends are unbelievers, you better do some soul searching. So we've seen the hypocrisy of partiality, the foolishness of partiality. So now let's look at, lastly, number three, the sinfulness of partiality. The sinfulness of partiality. We're in verses 8 through 13. James says in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. It's great that, that James uses the word royal here. It's, it's a strike of irony. It's like saying, you're obsessing over the rich and the powerful, but the Jesus that you believe in is royalty. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he has given us a royal law. And the law that James has in mind is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting there Leviticus 19.18, which Jesus also says is the second greatest commandment, which is second only to loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of the law is summed up in those two commandments. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love God and you love your neighbor, you're doing well. But, verse 9 says, If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Showing partiality is a violation of this royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. How do we know that? Because we don't like it when people show partiality against us. Nobody has ever been mistreated or marginalized because of their ethnicity or their looks or their net worth or their height or their weight or anything else and been glad about it. It hurts. We know it hurts. We recognize that when somebody is partial against us, it's sin when someone else does it to us. And so when we do it to others, we are not loving our neighbors as ourselves. We are not doing unto others as we would have them do to us. And it's sin. Let's just call it what it is. It's a transgression from God's law. Understand that, that even though the Christian is under grace, that does not mean that the law is now irrelevant to him. The Christian doesn't need to obey the law to be saved. That's true. But the person who is saved will obey the law. The person who is saved will obey the law. The Baptist Confession helpfully puts it this way. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it, yet it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live 
according to its precepts. So again, a person is not saved by obeying the law of God, but obeying the law of God is evidence that he is saved. Or as one theologian put it, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. It comes with works. It comes with love. And so, therefore, for us to hear that if we show partiality, we have transgressed God's law, that should be notable to us. This isn't just a matter of preference. This isn't extra credit Christianity. This is God's law. And to show partiality is to sin against him. And we can't excuse ourselves by saying, but there are so many other laws that I keep. That's why verse 10 says this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We use that verse uh, with evangelism, evangelistically, and it is helpful when you're talking to unbelievers, that's true. But recognize the context of this verse, it's for us. This verse is for the church. This is not in the context of evangelism. It is in the context of Christians obeying the law of God. And the idea here is that you can't just pick and choose which commands that you like, which commands you want to obey. Before today's sermon, you might have thought that it really wasn't a big deal to show partiality. But if you fail at this point, it doesn't matter that you obey the other laws. All of God's law is important. And James further illustrates this by saying in verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. We hear this from unbelievers sometimes, right? When you ask them, if you were to die today, why should you be allowed to go to heaven? They say something like, I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> as if that's the bar for holiness. As long as you haven't killed anybody, as long as you're not literally Hitler, that's good enough. It's silly for unbelievers to think that way. It's sillier for believers to think that way. Well, I know that I have shown partiality at church, but, you know, at least I haven't killed anybody. Or... At least I worshipped. I came to church, I prayed, and I sang. I listened intently to the sermon. At least I brought something to the luncheon, even though I'm purposely ignoring someone who's sitting alone three feet away from me. Listen, if you commit the sin of partiality, nothing else makes up for it. And that's true about any sin. It's true about any sin. But James highlights it in particular for this one sin, and maybe because... Christians in his time and in ours don't think that it's really a big deal, but it is. It's a big deal. And because it is, James admonishes us in verse 12, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Under the law of liberty. Now we need to understand that we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer under the law as those who are unable to keep it and will therefore be condemned by it. No, we are under grace. 
We have been set free. And yet, 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Similarly, Galatians 5.13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom in Christ, if you believe in him, does not mean that you have no law to obey. It means that we're going to be judged under the law of liberty. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, your obedience is not going to be the deciding factor on whether or not you're saved. Christ's obedience is your justification. Amen? But understand also, and I hope you will say amen to this also, is that you will give an account to your Savior. And certainly, in that account, you don't want to report to Jesus that you have showed partiality where he did not. So speak and act knowing that you're going to give an account to your Savior. Also understand that that God pays attention to your sin now, and he disciplines you for it now out of love. So exhibit a right fear of the Lord who disciplines by putting to death the sin of partiality in you. James wraps up this section by saying in verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in the first part of that verse, what what James is saying is that if you don't show mercy, you're not going to be shown mercy. And that makes it sound like God's mercy is conditional. But this isn't even the only place where this kind of language is used. Proverbs 21.13 says this, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Matthew 6.15, you say, well, that's Old Testament, Ed. Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Luke 6.37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And what's implied in that last one is that if you do judge, you will be judged. If you condemn, you will be condemned. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And in the same vein, James tells us that if you don't show mercy, God is not going to show you mercy either. In this context, mercy is is talking about showing compassion. Mercy and compassion, the same word is used for for both of those. And in particular, showing compassion to not just the rich man, but also to the poor person also. It's about showing compassion, showing mercy without partiality. Now, what do we make of this? We don't earn our salvation. Jesus helps us to understand this concept. Matthew 7.21 says this. Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus is saying is that for the people who do not do the will of his Father, it doesn't matter that they claim to be a Christian and even did some things for him. Someone who does not do the will of Christ's Father is a worker of lawlessness. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. What that means is they didn't lose their salvation. What that means is, together with James 2.13, someone who always shows partiality and never shows compassion is showing evidence of not being one of Christ's people. Someone who shows no mercy is a false follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus will say to him, I never knew you. Now the response to this verse, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, is not to sit there questioning your salvation. The proper response is to trust in Jesus Christ and repent. The proper response is to trust in him for your salvation and to continue this lifelong process of killing sin by his grace. The warnings of scripture, including this one, they're there for us to keep us on the right path. They're there to make us examine ourselves to, to see if, if we would be described as somebody who has shown no mercy. And they drive us to be more like Jesus Christ. Certainly, God's warnings shouldn't be the only motivators for our obedience, but they are there to motivate us. God's warnings are there to motivate us, along with his grace. So if you're someone who consistently shows partiality and consistently shows no mercy, you may not be a Christian. You may very well not be a Christian. Therefore, trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation and don't be that way. Don't be that way. Because the opposite of this concept is also true and visible in this verse. Look at the last part of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is to say that if you do show compassions, uh, compassion rather, to others, if you do show compassion to others, and if you are, by God's grace, putting to death sin, including the sin of partiality, then you are bearing evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. The mercy that you show other people is proof that God has shown mercy to you. And in that way, mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the kind of change that you want to see in your life. Naturally speaking, we're all selfish. That's, that's our starting point, is selfish. Naturally speaking, we only want is gonna, what's going to be beneficial to us. That's why we're prone to being partial. We like people who will give us benefits, who will give us stuff. We like people who will make us feel good about ourselves. We like people who we're comfortable with. And therefore, we like people who are like us. But if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you will find that you will increasingly be drawn to other people. You'll find that your heart will become like Jesus Christ, who took on the form of a servant for us. And you will increasingly stop obsessing about the externals and instead be concerned about the heart. And when you see that happening in your life, you'll rejoice because you know it didn't come from you. It's evidence that you have truly received God's mercy. It'll be 
the fruit that shows that you are indeed a tree planted by the water. So partiality is not only hypocrisy, it's not only foolishness, it's sinful, which means that it's an insult to God. And it is one of the reasons that Jesus hung on the cross for sinners like us. When we sing that that song which says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, we know that part of that sin was our partiality. Therefore, hate the partiality in you. Hate it and put it to death by the grace and the power of God at work in you. This morning we've seen the hypocrisy of partiality, the foolishness of partiality, and the sinfulness of partiality. Listen, if you are a hearer of this word and not a doer of it, you're deceiving yourself. You're in danger. You're either in danger of God's loving discipline in your life in the form of suffering, if you're a believer, or you're proving that you never believed in Jesus Christ to begin with. So do something with this. Don't be a hearer of the word and not a doer, thus deceiving yourself. Examine your heart and identify where there is partiality. Identify the enemy and then drive a tent peg through its head. Confess your partiality to others in your D group and outside of your D group and confess it to God and show partiality no more. This is actually really easy, a solution. It's difficult because of our flesh. But the solution is simple, right? Pray that God would help you to kill this. But also, just do this. It's easy. You ready? Have compassion on everyone. That's it. That's all you have to do to combat partiality. Have compassion on anyone. Isn't that even an easier way to think about it? Pray that God would help you to see everybody the way that you should. And here's how you should see everybody. Either the person standing in front of you is a fellow follower of Jesus Christ, deserving of your brotherly affection and service in Christ, or he is an unbeliever who is in desperate need of the gospel that saved you. That's it. Those are the only two types of people that you're going to encounter in this world, a fellow believer or an unbeliever. So show compassion on them accordingly. Whenever you meet a stranger, your number one goal should not be, what should I say next? Your number one goal should be to try to figure out whether this person in front of you is a brother or not, and then take the appropriate action based on what you find out. Easy, right? And hard, but easy. This is why no one should ever go unnoticed when we gather together for worship. Nobody. If a stranger walks in, or even a not a stranger walks in, he needs the love and the service of his siblings, or he needs the gospel. And if you're focused on discipleship and evangelism at every level, you will not show partiality. You will try to talk to everybody, and you will try to help them take a step toward Jesus Christ, God willing. If you refuse to reach out to somebody because of partiality, that's not just being antisocial. That's being anti-Great Commission. That's being anti-discipleship, anti-evangelism, and in the final analysis, anti-Christ. 
So instead, whenever you see a person, whether you already know that person or not, and whether it's in this church building or not, look at that as an opportunity to either encourage a brother in Christ or offer salvation to a sinner. And don't withhold that from anybody for any reason. And that's how you kill partiality. By God's grace, of course. On a practical level, to get started, you have to be intentional about doing the uncomfortable. Be intentional about doing the uncomfortable. Is it easier to just stay in your comfort zone and the people that you're already comfortable with? Of course it is. I can relate to that. Is it Christ-like? No. So we need to be intentional about it. Make it a point on Sunday mornings, especially especially in the assembly of believers, to go speak with people that you don't know very well. you got to make that a point. Why? Because your flesh says, don't do that. Your flesh says, run to your closest friends and ignore strangers. So you have to be intentional and walk in the Spirit instead. And during luncheons, as Pastor Ola has exhorted us before, sit with people that you don't normally sit with. Your best friends will still be there tomorrow. And if they abandon you because of a luncheon, they weren't good friends to begin with. And it's a church discipline issue anyway, okay? So take it upon yourself. Scan the room. Who's sitting alone? Who looks lonely? Who looks like they could use some help? And go take your family and sit with that person. Could you imagine that kind of church? 130 plus Christians at the lakes constantly reaching out to each other and to strangers with the aim of showing mercy to to others in Christ? If we focus on that, we'll kill partiality in this church. In closing, I want to remind us of the greatest motivation to kill partiality. The greatest motivation. It's a line from the hymn that we're about to sing. Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. If you're saved, it's because Jesus showed no partiality toward you. He didn't say, I'm only going to save the Israelites, those are my people. No, he saw you who were far off, with no knowledge of Yahweh, no knowledge of God's law, no access to the Old Testament sacrificial system, no awareness of the promises of a Messiah, and he said, I'm going after that one. You were not only a stranger, you were a sinner. You were an enemy of God and of Christ, and yet he still went after you. Meditate on that, saved sinner. Meditate on that, found sheep. Think deeply about the reality that God did not show partiality with you. And that will help you not to show partiality to others. Let's ask God to help us. Father, as it is with killing any sin and putting to death our mortal flesh, it's a lot easier to say and harder to do. But we know that you are powerful. We know that with you all things are possible, and we know that it is your promise to us that you will make us increasingly more like your son. And so we pray with a greater focus on this particular sin this morning. Forgive us, Father, where we have fallen short of your glory and help us to increasingly look more like you in this. Help us to treasure your gospel 
which shows us that you were not partial against us, but that you came after us when we were unlikable, unlovable, all because of your mercy and your love. Help us by your grace to reflect that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.